morning, church. Today's scripture is taken from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. The passage is also printed in page 8 of um, your bulletin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following, following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in their life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Timin, for, for reading God's word for us, and David, who left already, but uh, I think he did pretty well at uh, leading us in a time of worship. And uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Joel. I'm the pastoral intern serving here at One Covenant Church, and I've noticed uh, quite a few new faces this morning. And uh, if I've had the opportunity to meet you, and I'll be happy to talk to you after the service. And before I preach from God's word this morning, I just have uh, one announcement to make, and that is uh, uh, two members, two uh, cherished members of our church, Jovian Leong and Ring Eng, got married yesterday morning. So, um, yeah, and we just really want to congratulate them. And uh, if you do see them uh, in church or, or somewhere else, do send them your regards and your words of blessings. Okay. All right, so let us come to God's word, and as we hear from him this morning, let us ask. Let's seek for his blessing. Uh, let's pray to our God now. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we recognize indeed better to be, better it is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And Father, what a blessing it is to be praising you and to be worshiping you as your gathered people. And Father, as we receive from your word this morning, would you humble each one of our hearts as we receive the spiritual food from your word and Father, I pray that you'll not just fill our heads, but that you'll fill our hearts with joy in knowing that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord. And so we entrust this time to your hands. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll return to our study of the book of Romans. And for this season, we're looking at the first eight chapters of the Apostle Paul's magisterial letter to the church at Rome. And let me provide a brief recap of what we have looked at so far. And if you are new to the church, this might be helpful for you as we get into today's text. Now, since the start of this series, we've seen how Paul is jealous to make the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, central to his letter. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
And yet before he could talk about the good news, he had to give us the bad news. And the bad news is this, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a religious or an irreligious person, all of us are under the indictment and judgment of God because of who we are as sinners. All of us stand condemned before a righteous God. And yet, as we saw in the past few weeks, God's righteousness is now revealed apart from the law, and it comes to those who would place their trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul then gave the example of the Old Testament patriarch Abraham and helped us to see that those who trust in Jesus Christ will be counted as righteous in God's eyes. And last week, when we looked at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, we learned about the implications of being justified in Jesus Christ. We are now reconciled to God, and we have peace with Him. And this is where we left off last week. And this morning, we'll look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, and here, Paul is going behind our problem with sin and the solution that comes through faith. He's giving us a panoramic view of God's history of redemption that explains why we have this problem with sin and why there's this solution that comes through faith. It's a grand tale or a grand story of two Adams. And what we'll find is that our eternal destinies are tied to the Adamic figures that we belong to. And it's through this comparison, this contrast, that Paul assures us as believers of who we are in Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that what Paul is doing here is giving us a transition, a transition from everything that we talked about from the first part of Romans to the next few chapters, chapters 6 to 8 in this letter. Now, I need to say up front, I think that this passage is one of the most difficult and most controversial in all of Paul's writings. In fact, because of the grandiose nature of this passage, I actually think that this is one of the hardest passages to preach, not just from Paul's writings, but from the entire Bible. Now, the late John Stott, he puts it this way when talking about Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. All students of verses 12 to 21 have found it extremely condensed. Some have mistaken compression for confusion, but most have admired its craftsmanship. It may be likened to a well-chiseled carving or a carefully constructed musical composition. And what Stott is saying is that Paul's argument in this passage is theologically dense and packed and this is the reason why it's so controversial. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the gist of Paul's argument is actually very easy to grasp, and that's this message. We are either in Adam or we are in Jesus Christ, and this has implications for all of us. There is no third way apart from Adam or Christ. On the 17th century Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, he puts it this way, In God's sight, there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all other men hanging at their belts, or you like older English, hanging from their girdle strings. But what we have here is a vivid imagery of these realities that all of us are either united to Adam 
or we're united to Jesus Christ. And so we'll now explore what this means. And as we look at this remarkable text, we'll look at it in two sections. Death in Adam, that's the first point. And second, life in Christ. I mean, how often do you get a two-point sermon? And if you look at the ESV Bible and the title, it actually says Death in Adam, Life in Christ. So it kind of works out nicely. And I think it actually, it actually helps us to understand the text uh, well in this way. So let's begin with the first point, death in Adam. Let's begin by looking at verse 12. So if your Bibles, turn there with me. This is what Paul says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And what Paul has done is that as you read the sentence, you're kind of anticipating that he is providing the contrast, that he will say something else, there's going to be a comparison coming. But what he does is that Paul actually breaks off his sentence and he doesn't complete his comparison until he gets to verse 18 when he picks things up again. Now why is that? And I think the reason is because Paul recognized that what he had just said can be easily misunderstood. So what he's doing is taking the time to clarify his statement. Now there are two main issues here, and the first one is relatively easy to address. And the question is this, who is the one man in verse 12? And Paul tells us in verse 14 that it refers to Adam, our first father. Paul is bringing us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Now, if you're new to our church or if you are new to the Christian faith, uh, some of these things would seem a bit foreign, but what I'll recommend is that you listen to our sermon series on Genesis and particularly the sermons that have focused on the first three chapters of Genesis. But right here, I'll just give a very brief overview. Now, in Genesis 2, God created Adam as an, as an actual person in his image and placed him in the Garden of Eden. And then God gave a command to Adam and said that he can eat from every tree of the garden, but not from this one tree, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day, he shall surely die. But as we move on to Genesis chapter 3, what we find is Adam failing in this regard. Adam decided to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobey God's command. And what we find is that Adam did die, but it was not a physical death. Rather, it was a spiritual death. And this is the same Adam that Paul points us to in Romans chapter 5. And so this is the first issue that he tackled, which is relatively simple. Now, the second issue is a little more difficult to address, or I would say a lot more difficult to address, and it's the question, what does Paul mean when he says that death spread to all men because all sinned? Now, there are various proposals that have been given throughout church history to explain this, but let me just highlight two this morning. Now, one way to understand this is to say, that we die because we have imitated Adam, that we have followed his example, and that we have sinned against God. And so the sinning that is in view here are the actual sins that we have committed, and we have done so by imitating Adam. We have transgressed God's commands. Now, the problem with the view is this. It's not so much about 
the fact that we sinned because we do sin as sinners. But the problem with the view in this passage is that it doesn't square very well with Paul's argument in the rest of this passage. If you look at verses 15 to 19, you realize that Paul tells us five times, once in each verse, that death came to all men through one man's trespass or by the one man's disobedience. And so this whole proposal of referring to our individual sins actually doesn't work very well in our passage. Rather, Paul is telling us that sin has entered the human race through Adam's failure to obey God. Adam didn't just sin as a mere individual, rather his sin had the consequences for all of us. So this is the first view, and I actually don't take this view. But there's another view that I think is more aligned with what this passage teaches, is the view that Adam represented all of humanity as our representative head. And what this means is that when Adam fell, when he disobeyed God, everyone that he represented fell as well. And as the Westminster Logic Catechism puts it, it says that Adam represented us as a public person. And what this means is that Adam sinned not just as an individual, but as a representative on behalf of all humanity. And the thing is this, as a representative, if Adam had obeyed God fully, if he had resisted the temptation and not eat from the tree, he would have secured eternal life, not just for him, but for all of his posterity. And the problem is that he didn't. The problem was that he disobeyed God in this context. And as a result, Adam's sin is now reckoned to all of us, is now imputed to all of us. And we saw this idea of, of imputation back in chapter 4 when we looked at the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And you remember the term that Z used, the idea of double imputation, where our sins are imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. And if we take Adam's fall into consideration, we can actually call this a triple imputation. How's that for a term? And the idea of triple imputation that includes the imputation of Adam's sin to all of us. Now, the sin that we inherited from Adam is what theologians call original sin. Now, what is this term? You know what is original sin? Now, original sin doesn't refer to the first sin that Adam committed but rather it refers to the consequences, the corrupt consequences of Adam's disobedience. And the result that came for all of humanity is this, that we are by nature sinners. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And basically what original sin communicates is this. It's not so much that we are sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. And actually this is something that we, that is a part of our daily experience. In fact, the British writer G.K. Chesterton actually says that original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine that we can find in the Bible. Now, he might be overstating his case a little bit, but there's a point to what he's saying. And in fact, if you want to understand original sin, if you want to hear about original sin, 
Talk to parents who have been parents, you know, who have young children and they can tell you all about original sin. Uh, you know, they can tell you, oh yeah, bringing up a young kid, that was so difficult. And, and they'll tell you all about it. But at the heart of it, what we find is that the reality of original sin actually points us to our union with Adam. And what are the consequences of this union? Well, there are two things here, and I'll just make the first point very, very quickly. First, there's condemnation before God. So verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. In our natural state, all of us stand guilty before God. And this is something that we've seen in the previous chapters. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says that there is none who are righteous, no, not one. And this is the indictment that has been leveled against us by the divine judge. So this is the first point, condemnation. But the second thing, I want to spend more time on this, is the idea of death. The idea that death now reigns in the lives of everyone united to Adam. And really the idea of death is the idea of spiritual death. So verse 15, it says, Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And Paul actually elaborates on the reality of death in verses 13 to 14. So look there with me. So verses 13 to 14 say this, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now, it's actually very hard for me to say for sure what Paul is saying here in these verses, but let me give it a stare. Let me give it a go at trying to understand it. Here, the law refers to the Mosaic law that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament. And this is pretty clear from his reference to Moses in verse 14. Now, what's the purpose of including Moses in his argument. I think the purpose is to show us the difference between death before and death after the giving of the law. And I think this is what Paul means when he said in verse 13 that sin is not counted when there is no law. Now, this doesn't mean that sin was somehow absent before the giving of the law, but it does mean that there is less accountability because the law was not yet given. However, the point that Paul is driving at is actually this. Even before the giving of the law, of the Mosaic law, death was already present and already reigning. And this is why he says in verse 14 that there is death even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now, I don't think we need to over-speculate about who these people are, but I think the point that Paul is making is very clear, that even without the law of God, without actual transgression of the Mosaic law, there is already death because of what Adam did, which affected all of us. Now, some of you, understandably, will have concerns that go something like this. You know, why should a sin of one man, why should a sin of Adam cause us 
to become sinners. You know, how is that actually fair? If I was in Adam's shoes, you know, surely I would have done the right thing. I would have resisted the serpent and I would have not have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I want to admit to you that these are very, very difficult issues to address, but let me respond briefly in three ways. First, God is the one who chose and created Adam as our representative. And if we think that we would have made a better choice ourselves, it actually assumes that we are smarter than God, right? It actually assumes that we would have made a better choice and that, and that you know, God's plan would somehow come to fruition if only he had chosen me, if, he had, if I had done the work. And it assumes that we actually know better than God does. And the reality is this, that if we were placed in the same situation, we would have acted in the same way as Adam. So that's my first response. The second response is this, that there are actually many things in our life that we are experiencing that happens beyond our control and we actually live with them. You know, we were all born in a particular family. You know, we're born under different circumstances and in different countries, even for some of us, you know, not here in Singapore, but from elsewhere. And all of these things, all of these elements are actually beyond our control. And you may even think of this idea of representation in the decisions made by a father. A father who makes decisions for the whole family as the head of the household. Now, as members of the family, we may not like those decisions, but the fact is that the father has decided as a representative of the entire household. And as a family, we bear the consequences of those decisions that were made as a family by the father. And this is actually similar to the whole idea of representative that is at play in Adam's sin. And so in this regard, this experience or this idea of representation is actually not so different from some of the things that we're already experiencing or living in the present is actually not so foreign from us. Now, for my third response, I'm actually going to leave it till we get to our next point on life in Christ, and I will talk about it then. But, you know, after hearing all of this, you might wonder, you know, what does this mean practically? You know, what does it mean to be a spiritual dead man walking in Adam? You know, what does that actually look like practically? Well, Paul tells us, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, that being dead in trespasses and our sins means following the way and the prince of this world. It means living in the passions of our flesh and giving in to sinful desires. It means living as if our way and our desires are more important than living according to God's way. And this is not just for non-Christians, this is for professing Christians as well. Professing Christians who have tasted the grace of salvation but have chosen to live in a way that is not according to God's way but according to their own ways. And this can be dangerous and it can be detrimental when we steadfastly live in such a manner. And eventually, you know, when things go wrong in our lives or when we don't get the things that we want, you know, what's going to happen to all of the professing Christians who have been living in a fleshly way? And it's not just going to be disappointment with God. I think there is going to be that disappointment with God for not getting the things that we want. But there's something else that will happen as well. And, 
and that is the idea of resentment. There's going to be resentment towards God. There's going to be resentment for not getting the things that we want and feeling like God has somehow turned his back towards us. And what I want to say is this, that when this happens, we are actually going further and further away from the God of grace. That our hearts are actually hardening and become more, becoming more and more hardened towards God. And unless we repent, and unless we turn away from our wayward ways and actually turn to God, what we'll find is that we'll inch closer and closer to self-destruction. It's actually going to get harder and harder for us to turn to God unless we repent immediately. And this is what we find in the sin of Adam. This is the devastation that has been introduced through the disobedience of Adam. And yet, there is hope. There's hope because God has provided a way out through the life that is found in Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our second point. So we're almost there. Okay, in verse 14, Paul calls Adam a type of the one who was to come. Now there's another term here, and you know what does Paul mean when he says that Adam is a type? Well, a type refers to a person, to an institution, or to an event in the Old Testament that has the divine purpose of foreshadowing the age of Christ. Now, let me say that again. A type refers to a person, an institution, or an event in the Old Testament that has the divine purpose of foreshadowing the age of Jesus Christ. We can think, for instance, of circumcision in the Old Testament. Circumcision was meant to be a type of of baptism, the reality of baptism in the context of the new covenant. Now, in, in our context, in this passage, what we find is that Adam is a type, and he's a type who anticipates a greater representative, and this greater representative is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, calls Christ the last Adam. He is the final and the only other representative of humanity. And so Adam and Jesus Christ act for humanity in different ways. Now, how are they different? Well, let's look at verses 18 to 19, where Paul actually completes his contrast and his comparison. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and to life, for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul gives us a contrast between the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Jesus Christ. And it's through the obedience of Jesus Christ that we become righteous and justified. Now, what is the obedience that is in view here? Now, some think that the obedience here refers to Jesus Christ dying for our sins. 
You know, just as Adam committed the one act of disobedience, so you have the one act of Jesus Christ dying for our sins that is in view here. And this is sometimes called the passive obedience of Jesus Christ, which describes his willingness to be punished and to die for our sins. And yet I think that Paul is actually saying something more than just the passive obedience of Christ. You see, if Christ simply came to die for our sins, you know, what is that actually going to do? Yes, he's dying and, and that, is the right, that is the right judgment that we should have received, but Christ took it upon himself. But what that does is that it actually cancels our debt before God, but it doesn't make us righteous before him. It'll give us a clean slate before God, but it doesn't mean that we are justified through the righteousness of Christ before him. Rather, I think the obedience in view here includes a kind of obedience that actually makes us righteous in the eyes of God. And the way Jesus did this was by living a perfect, a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. When Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law of God, what he did was that he gained for us a righteousness that we could never achieve because we could never fulfill the requirements of the law. And this is what we call the active obedience of Jesus Christ, where he kept the law of God perfectly throughout his life. And so the obedience in view here is about Christ's entire life of obedience to God. There is his life of perfect obedience to the law of God, as well as his willingness to die for our sakes, to the point of dying on the cross for our sins. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a document that we subscribe to, says in chapter 11, that is through imputing the obedience and the satisfaction of Christ that we become righteous. And in short, what we can say is this, Christ didn't just die for us, but he lived for us as well. And this is actually the third reason why the idea of representation is so important, because it's important for our salvation. You see, if you want to deny the idea of representation in Adam, and you want to reject this idea wholesale, then consistency requires us to reject representation in Jesus Christ as well. We should reject the imputation of our sins to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us for our salvation. And at the end of the day, if we remove the headship of Jesus Christ, you know what hope is left for us as sinners? We will be condemned and all of us will receive eternal damnation. But it's precisely because Christ is representing us that we can stand before the throne of God. It's because of what Christ has done for us and not what we have done that we can stand righteous before God. And do you think that's fair? Well, of course it's not fair because it's grace, you see. It is grace that has come to us in the form of a gift. Now, what's the nature of this relationship that Christ has secured for us? Well, look at verses 15 to 17 with me. It says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God 
and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reigned in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that the free gift of Christ is not like the result of Adam's sin. And Paul uses the phrase much more to describe the gift and the grace of God. Now, we saw this phrase last week in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and Paul used it then to make a greater to lesser argument for the kinds of benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. But here, Paul is not making a greater to lesser argument, you know, as if he's somehow saying that condemnation in Adam is greater than life in Jesus Christ, but rather it's actually the other way around. Paul is helping us to see the abundance, or we can say the superabundance of God's grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And he says this as well in the last two verses of this passage. So verses 20 to 21, Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded overmore, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here, as he did back in verses 13 to 14, Paul is asking about the role of the law. And it's the role of the law with respect to salvation. And the logic goes like this. If all of humanity is simply divided into those who trust in Jesus and those who don't, then what is the use of the law? Where is the place of the law with respect to our salvation? Well, in our sinfulness, the law becomes a mirror that shows us our sins. And there's an increase in our trespass because there's now greater liability. Because of the law that tells us what we should do and what we ought not to do, there is now a greater liability to what God has revealed in his law. And yet the apostle tells us that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why is that? The reason is because when we are confronted with the law and with more and more of the law, and we see our inability to keep the commandments of God, it actually brings us to a place where we see our own helplessness. We know that as sinners, we are unable to fulfill the requirements of the law, and in our helplessness, it points us to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And the whole point in Paul's ver in these verses is that we have no hope really apart from the gospel, and we see that through the lens of the law, that see, and we see our own helplessness, and that is when grace can begin to shine and can begin to abound in our own lives. We recognize that in Adam, we are rightfully condemned and we deserve the judgment of God. But in Jesus Christ, we have a gift that was not earned, 
but something that we do not deserve. In fact, the way Paul puts it is that life in Jesus Christ is so powerful, so much more that we have through the grace of Jesus Christ that it can actually reverse and overcome the effects of death in Adam. The Puritan, Richard Sibbs, he puts it this way. He says that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And this is the power of grace in believers. Now, we recognize, we need to recognize that there is much more we have in Christ, but it's not merely in the present moment, but in the future as well. You see, when Adam fell, he was exiled from the Garden of Eden. He was exiled from fellowship with God. And what Jesus Christ did was something that was immense. What Jesus did when he reconciled us to God, he was not just bringing us back to the Garden of Eden. He was not just restoring us to a state of innocence. Rather, what he did in reconciling us to God is that he's bringing us to a state of glory that is far greater than what Adam had in the garden. And there's the promise that we will receive resurrected bodies and, the, and there'll be the promise of eternal glory when Jesus Christ returns. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And so there's the promise that we will receive glorious resurrected bodies and there's a state of glory that we can look forward to. Now how does this affect us as Christians in the here and the now? Well, verse 21 tells us that in Jesus Christ, grace reigns in our lives through righteousness leading to eternal life. And what does that mean? It means that we are no longer in bondage. We are no longer subject to the reign of spiritual death. There is a transformation that leads us to righteousness in our own lives. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that being in Jesus Christ means walking in good works according to the new life that we have already received. And by living in a way that is different from the ways of the world, we are demonstrating to people the new life that we have received in Jesus Christ. And all of this is not secured by the works that we do. Though works is important, but we need to recognize that our worth, our worth in Jesus Christ, is not determined by our works, but our works are determined by our worth in Jesus Christ. And how does that look like practically? You know, when we show grace, when we show patience to other people, you know, despite their ungrateful response, despite the fact that they are not even responsive to the grace that we've showed them, when we do that, we're actually giving people a taste of the grace that was already shown to us. You know, in the context of the church, when we are gracious to one another despite our sins towards each other and despite our own shortcomings, what we are displaying in our patience with one another is the forbearance of God that He constantly shows us. And I need to recognize that, you know, in the earlier days, there were times where I actually found myself feeling disregard. When I saw the sin, 
in people in the same group as me, fellow Christians, I was impatient towards them. You know, I was telling them, you must repent and you must change right at this very moment. But what I realized is that God himself has been so patient towards me in my own growth and in my own sanctification that as a person, as a fellow brother, I need to be showing the same kind of patience and forbearance to my fellow brothers and sisters as well. And that is the work of God's grace in our lives that even in the context of sin within the church, that we are able to show grace and to be patient towards one another. And in doing that, we are putting the grace of God on display. And this is what, and this is how our lives are going to look so very different. And apart from this, there's something else as well. There is assurance that we can have, knowing that we belong to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has secured our status in him when his righteousness was credited to our account so that we may become righteous. And this is not something that can be taken from us. You know, we're not going to lose our righteousness just because, you know, we go through mood swings, I feel terrible, you know, after a day of work, or because our faith, you know, we feel our faith is so weak and, and we just find it so difficult to trust in God. It's not all of that as if it depends on the strength of our faith. Rather, it depends upon the one whom we set our eyes upon. Rather, it's the person that we look towards. It's Jesus Christ who has secured our status in him and has secured our salvation in him. And yes, we need to recognize that we will struggle as believers, but we struggle in knowing that victory is secured in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is our anchor and our eternal hope. And we recognize that what Jesus has done for us is there is victory and death is no longer, has no, long, no longer has the last word in our lives. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And in Jesus Christ, we see that death has lost its grip on us because Jesus Christ has given us new life in him. Jesus Christ has triumphed over sin and death so that we may no longer live in them. And when we trust in Christ, we can have the assurance, we can have the security that we belong to Christ and Christ is ours. So brothers and sisters, dear friends, who do you belong to? Do you belong to Adam or do you belong to Jesus Christ? Now, there was a theologian by the name of J. Gresham Machen, and he was the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. You know, he founded the seminary in 1929, and he was known for being an ardent defender of biblical Christianity. In fact, he was at the forefront when liberalism seeped into the church, and he was fighting hard to combat liberalism in the church. So he was a man of many achievements. And yet when Machen was on his deathbed, 
he recognized that all of these achievements that he did, all of this paled in comparison to what Jesus Christ did for him. And so listen to his last words before he passed away. So he said this on his deathbed. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And Major knew that even as he approached impending death, he had the comfort of knowing Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord. The work of obedience of Jesus Christ in his life and his death guaranteed that Machen will stand righteous before God. And this, my friends, is what Jesus did for us when he obeyed the full demands of the law and when he offered himself to God as our sacrifice once and for all. His righteousness is now ours when we trust in him and God sees us as righteous before him. And when and in our Christian life, what that does is that righteousness and life and grace will begin to reign in our own lives. And what about you, my friends? You know, where is your place in this story of two Adams? You know, are you united to Adam or are you united to Jesus Christ? Who will represent you when you stand before the throne of God? And is Jesus Christ your deepest and your greatest treasure of your own heart? And I just want to say, if you're new here, if you're not a Christian, let me urge you to consider what Jesus has already accomplished. Let me urge you to consider the immeasurable joy of trusting in Jesus and knowing him as your Savior and Lord. He who hasn't here, let him hear the word of God that has come to us today. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died for us so that we may stand righteous before you. And Father, indeed, there is nothing that we can bring before you except for the sins that have made our salvation necessary in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you help us to see how glorious this gift of Christ is to undeserving sinners like us. Help us to see the privilege that we have and the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you will empower us by your Spirit so that we may live boldly in the world to the glory of your holy name. And so we come before you humbly as your people. And we thank you for hearing our prayers, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever be praised. Amen.